everyone. Welcome to La Coyera del Congo. My name is Ayala Watson, and this is the second segment of my honors thesis project titled The Liberation of Afro-Latinx College Women from Traditional Beauty Standards. I will be taking you through my entire process of the honors thesis as well as the data collection and the analysis of the information that I've gathered from interviews with Afro-Latinx college's women. So the first episode, we did more of an introduction. I took y'all through the reason why I wanted to do this research. I gave y'all a couple quotes and examples as to what is going on in the world and how the main ideas of this project manifest in the real world. Before we get to the actual data, I first want to take you through the process of the data collection for a research project at a higher education institution. So I attend Clark University and our psychology program is very well known in the United States. I would like to say that similar undergraduate students that do honors thesis go through a similar process, specifically in the psychology field, but of course they're, not everything will be the same. A challenge that I definitely came across while trying to put this project together was going through the IRB. So the IRB is the Institutional Review Board and every university may have a IRB. A lot of higher ed institutions, research facilities have IRBs and the IRB is basically a committee of members, researchers who are responsible for ensuring that research conducted by whoever is conducting the research, faculty, staff, students are doing it with the welfare of human subjects in mind. I'm not sure how the, what the process is like for non-human subjects, but because in psychology and me specifically, I'm interviewing human subjects, I had to go through this review board. So one of the main issues or a barrier that I had to hurdle through with the IRB going back and forth was the issue of the podcast, right? So it's not typical for someone to submit an honors thesis in the form of a podcast, which is why I paired it with the literature review that should be accessible at this time. By the time that the podcast is aired, it should be accessible to anyone who will be listening. The issue with a podcast and psychology research is that to protect the rights of human subjects and human participants, they may not want their information to be identifiable and their stories to be traced back to them because that could be very harmful for the participant, right? So that's why in the next couple of episodes, when I play you a clip of an interview that I had with a participant, I would make sure to bleep any sort of identifiable information like their hometown, what university they go to, their name, their age, things like that. In order for me to get this project approved by the IRB, the Institutional Review Board, I had to create a application. So this application had to basically give the nature of the subject where I had to explain thoroughly what type of research study this was going to be, uh, whether qualitative or quantitative. Quantitative would be more reporting on statistics, as I will not be reporting on statistics. Mine was more qualitative um, and trying to basically report on the stories that the participants gave me. In this application, I heavily had to defend why I wanted to use the podcast as the vehicle for dissemination. Dissemination means how 
this research, this data is going to be um, presented to the world, right? So usually you would see it in a article form, uh, in presentations, but I wanted to do my podcast for many reasons. One is because I know that there's already a platform here for Afro-Latinx voices. And two, I definitely wanted to make this information accessible. So in episode three and maybe a little bit of four, you will hear a lot of the actual research and the actual data that came from this entire process. And you'll be able to interact with, you know, the conversations that you hear with the women that I interviewed a little more deeply, where they're coming from by their tone of voice, by their connotations, by their lived experiences, maybe even a little bit better than reading it um, in a very small lettered printed article. So the thing about an IRB application is that you have to be very, very detailed. So I'm going to take you through the entire application, then I'll take you through how I reached out to participants, and then the different steps that I had to take with each participant to collect the data and ensure their safety. So after identifying and describing the nature of the subject, I had to also identify the participants. So who my participants were going to be, why, and how I was going to recruit them. I was very clear that I wanted college-aged Afro-Latinx women. I didn't specify on sexual orientation. I didn't specify on where in the United States they could be from. Uh, Most of the women are from Northeastern universities. Some are from a little bit more down south. Of course, all of the women had to identify as Afro-Latinx, and that would be up to the woman to identify as. It wouldn't be me telling someone whether they are Afro-Latinx or not. I had to go through the testing procedure. So due to COVID-19, one of the regulations that the IRB had was that these interviews cannot be conducted face-to-face, right? So my sophomore year, I opted into being a participant for another honors thesis, and we met face-to-face. There was also compensation involved, monetary compensation involved for participating, and I was able to sit face-to-face with him and answer all his questions. Knowingly, I knew I was being recorded. There was a tape recorder and he was able to use that data for his paper. I had to be very detailed on how I was going to facilitate these interviews through Zoom and be very specific on the implications of being recorded through Zoom and having interviews that are not face-to-face. Like most other researchers doing studies with human subjects, there has to be a consent form attached. So in the consent form, I had to specify that it was going to be a 60-minute long interview conducted by myself. I had to make sure that that the participants knew that their voice and their stories were going to be used in a public podcast setting, that their participation is entirely voluntary. If during the interview they wanted to skip a question or they didn't feel comfortable answering a question, that that was completely up to them. They were not forced to answer any questions they didn't want to. The participants had to know that the study was confidential but not anonymous. So that means that I, as a researcher, am not going to share any names or data to anyone outside of those who are the researchers, so really just me. But obviously they're not anonymous because I was meeting them in a way face-to-face I had to know their identities to recruit them, right? It's not like in a quantitative study, for example, you can fill out a survey or a questionnaire and not put your full name 
or anything identifiable about you, right? So that would be also confidential, but not, but it would be anonymous if it was quantitative. But back to my specific study, it was qualitative, it was not anonymous, it was confidential. I also had to specify that the files would be kept on a electronic platform that is password protected. So my laptop is fingerprint unlock only. Nobody would be able to access the very sensitive information of my participants without my fingerprint. So with this application, I also had to include uh, how I was going to recruit my participants. For those who follow me on Instagram and Facebook and other social medias, probably saw me in the last couple of months pushing my flyer for this honors thesis that pretty much stated an introduction. So who I was recruiting, who I was looking forward to participating in my study, what the study was about, and emphasizing that it would be incorporated into a podcast. Something that was really important to mention in this flyer is that if I had posted it, for example, on my Instagram feed, it would be best for any potential participants to not comment that they want to participate for others to see because then that would take the confidentiality away from the participant. I used that poster to gain interest and my email as well as the email of my two advisors, Dr. Esteban Cardamil and Dr. Nicole Overstreet, were also on the flyer so that if for some reason they wanted to check with my supervisors, about some details they could have. Another thing I had to add to this IRB application was the email that I would send to each and every one of my participants in order to get them to sign the consent form as well as confirm their participation. And basically what this email said, it said my name, what my interest was with the project, how long the interview would be, and basically asking for this person to send back a consent form signed, and then we would set up a time to meet on Zoom. And that's how all of the interviews ended up going. So before I get into how I put together the list of questions that I wanted to ask each and every participant, I had to first make sure to fully develop a plan for the risk. The risk section of the application for the IRB was basically what potential psychological distress could the participants go through during the process of being interviewed for my study. So the topic that I was asking about are pretty personal topics, right? So self-image, self-esteem, anti-Blackness in the Latinx community, anti-Blackness within the world. And a lot of that could bring up psychological distress. So I had to make sure that I was prepared to give out any um, resources for if a participant were to have gone through some sort of distress throughout the interview. So within the application, I made sure to list the phone numbers for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration Hotline, TherapyForBlackGirls.com, and our university's counseling center's phone number and address. So once all of that was squared away, we finally were able to meet one-on-one. I was able to meet one-on-one with the participants and take them through the interview. So because there was about a two-month gap between my initial um, my initial communication with them, introducing myself and sending them the 
consent form i made sure to go over all of that information before i made sure to let them know that if at any point in time they did not want to answer a question they did not have to i made sure to let them know that if at any point in time they did not want to answer a question they didn't have to and if they were in a space with someone else where they felt unsafe to answer a question or that they did not want anyone else to know that type of information to just skip it and we could either go back to it or we could skip the question altogether and that would have been totally fine so now in the last few minutes of this episode i'm gonna take everyone through my interview guide so the questions that i asked the questions and i'm gonna try to add a little bit of why i wanted to ask those questions i want to before i start that i want to preface that these questions are open-ended and it took me about i'm gonna say like six maybe eight times of back and forth checking with my my advisors on this list of questions because it was very interesting actually that the whole reason why i wanted to do this project was to challenge and critique accessibility right and then all of the questions that I was asking before I came up with these questions were very theoretical. They, the language I was using was a bit inaccessible. And I mean, I think that critique could also, it could apply to these episodes as well. At some point, I do get stuck in that language and I forget to code switch right back to language that I'm used to on a day-to-day Um, and not the language that I use in classrooms, right? So a lot of the feedback that I was receiving from my advisors was to use language that folks my age, whether in higher education or not, would understand and would use and use on a day-to-day basis, right? Not something that could be read in a textbook or, you know, it would not make the interviewee or the participant comfortable for me to use all this language that they're going to have to look up or they would have to consistently ask for me to um, identify or define a word. So I ended up overall with 18 questions that had some sub questions and I was able to put these questions into segments. So the first segment were three questions on just the participant's background. So I asked what, how they identified ethnically and racially, if they always identified that way, and what their nationality is. Basically, from those questions, I wanted to see, of course, who am I speaking to? Like, how do they identify? If they're here, they must identify as Afro-Latinx. Where are you from? What culture were you raised in? You know, all those things just to get to know the person. I also like to identify myself. I'm black, I'm Panamanian, I was born in Panama, all of that stuff. So it's a good way to break the ice, but it's also good to have for data collection, right? I want to be able to report back my findings of who my participants were and where they were coming from. So the next set of questions were under the major umbrella of asking about their individual portrayal of beauty. So I asked, what do they define as beauty? Would that definition align with their family's definition? I asked them if they ever felt beautiful when they felt it the most and when they felt it the least. I asked them to tell me about a beauty icon that they looked up to growing up 
and if that beauty icon would have been considered beautiful to their family at the time. So I'm not going to get into much of their answers right now. I want to save that solely for the next episode where we can talk about the themes and we can talk about um, what the answers to these questions were. But I do want to give a little bit of background as to why I'm asking these questions. So one thing, (laughs) I'm going to be very honest here. Um, One thing that I also struggled with coming up with these questions was trying not to impose my own personal views onto the participants before they even get a chance to tell me about themselves right so if I wanted if I wanted to get their experiences on anti-blackness for example I can't outwardly assume that this participant either a is fully aware of what anti-blackness is or b has even experienced it right or is aware that they've experienced it or can put it into words Um, or even want to tell me about whether they've experienced it or not, right? So I, it took a lot of practice and a lot of conversation with my advisors and my mentors to understand that, that I can't just outwardly ask someone, you know, under this category, right? For example, what is their individual portrayal of beauty? If I'm talking about the um, liberation of, you know, anti-Black beauty standards, I can't automatically be like, how do you challenge white supremacy during you know like during your makeup routine like that's you know that's that's really I'm pushing it right that uh, that's me imposing my thoughts on their answer which is going to it's going to affect the validity like how valid and how reliable the results that I'm getting would would be right So I stuck with more broad questions where folks can interpret it in the way that they want to the most. Um, And like I said before, I did not get there by myself. This is probably draft number seven or eight of these questions. So the next question, uh, the next set of questions are under the umbrella question, what their beauty standards are within their family culture. So in this section, I asked them questions like, as a black Latinx woman, what was your experience reaching adulthood in your household? I asked them to tell me about some expectations on self-presentation that their familial units, that their family or who they lived with growing up, who raised them had. I asked them about how those expectations made them feel. And this question tied a little bit to the next um, section, but it was I was, you know, it was in between. I asked them if they knew any phrases that were in Spanish that described anti-blackness or any phrases that described anti-Latinidad. So the meaning behind these questions is I wanted to get to know how they were raised, you know, what sort of values and standards they're parental unit was enforcing in the household so again this would have been one of those things where I couldn't outrightly say you know was your mother was your grandmother pro-black was she self-aware you know was your grandfather a colorist right I can't I can't just assume these things about people that's also pretty insulting to just come out the bat like that right so 
asking something like, tell me about the expectations on self-presentation that your family had. It's basically asking, you know, what were the messages that you got growing up about how you're supposed to look? You know, I know personally growing up in my Latinx Caribbean household, you know, you can't just leave the house looking any type of way. If we're going to the mall, if we're going to a function, no sweats unless they're brand new sweats and it's a it's a sweatsuit combination and you have your and you have your jewelry your new sneakers you know you're dressed it up you know what I'm saying like that's me but obviously going back to the topic of the question of beauty standards and the ties that Eurocentricity has to beauty standards I wanted to first ask what they experience and we will get into their answers in the next episode with the question on reaching adulthood in their household i asked that question because the literature that i read a lot of them that had to do with young girls young black girls specifically had to do with the adultification of black women the hypersexualization of black girls and black women but also from my personal experiences and hearing just having conversations with my my friends is the the way in which you know we're told to change our clothes if certain people were coming to the house or we go to school and our parents think that our outfit looks great and maybe we have ripped jeans on or maybe we have a tank top on and you know my mom was all about that yeah girl you go ahead you go to school you look great and I go to school and I guess dress coded, but homegirl who, <laughs> let's say a young girl that was not of my skin color, a white girl with a different body type than I did wore the same outfit and she could go through the whole day fine, not getting dress coded. So that was what I was trying to get at with that set of questions. I wanted to know what their upbringing was like. Now this middle section coming up of questions was the section with the most questions. And it was under the overarching question of what beauty means within the communities they belong to. So this question is a little bit different because I didn't wanna put family questions under the overarching communities question because family has a huge role in how we see ourselves and our beauty standards and our values Um, so I wanted that to be a separate narrative so communities that's when I wanted to ask about that's where I did ask about their universities friend groups um, relationships you know the city they grew up in what the demographics of that was how they felt growing up what the beauty standards were you know things like that That's what I meant by communities and the communities they belong to. So the questions that I asked here were, I wanted them to tell me about a physical feature that they have trouble learning to love. I asked them about the importance of hair upkeep and what that means means to them. I asked if they knew what the definition of colorism was. And if they did, I asked them, when they became aware of what colorism was and who benefited from it. I asked them 
how they would describe the beauty standards that are favored in the dating scene within their campus. That was a very interesting one. I told them to tell me, if any, to tell me about a time in their life where they were encouraged to change something about their physical appearance to fit the beauty standards in the community around them. That was another interesting one. I asked if they could recall a time when their body was viewed in a sexual way, even when they were not engaging in sexual ways. And finally, I asked them if they experienced with either Latinx folks or Black folks treating them differently because of their Afro-Latinidad. So like I said before I read these questions out, my purpose was to understand their experiences and other relationships that they have outside of their family. So with the hair upkeep, a lot of that um, has to do with media, right? It does start in the home, but if not, or even on top of that, you get, you know, your interactions at school, your interactions at a predominantly white institution, who touches your hair, who doesn't touch your hair, how do people react when they touch your hair, why don't people understand not to touch a black woman's hair, or the media, you know, what hair is the most desirable, what products should you buy, what your hair should look like, even outside of its natural state, even within its natural state, what is your hair supposed to look like, what type of kinky hair is too kinky, what do you do to soften it, how often do you moisturize, you know, all of these things I'm naming off the bat, off the bat, and I don't even have hair anymore, so can you, if you can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine, um, the types of answers that I encountered. The colorism question was extremely important uh, because colorism in the black community is internalized racism, but also it's interactive racism within the black community. There was a lot of talk on, you know, privilege and what it means to be a lighter skinned black woman, a darker skinned black woman, a medium tone, a white passing, you know, all of these things came up. The dating scene question was very interesting. Some folks were more or less connected to the dating scene on their on their campus. And others were, you know, d- dating and also comparing their experiences um, in high school versus in college and how the different demographics or even the same demographics brought upon either new or different experiences. The question about being viewed in sexual ways also goes to the question in the last section about being adultified and hypersexualized. Um, This question did come with a trigger warning every time. I made sure to preface that to the best of my abilities, I made sure to preface that this question could absolutely be skipped. I tried to give a reminder every time. Um, but for the most part, folks did answer them. And like I said, we will go over the answers in the next episode. But there were consistent themes of the experiences of being a younger Black Latina woman growing up in urban areas, dense city areas, and having interactions with folks, having interactions with folks every time you leave the house. The last set of questions were under the larger umbrella of what their experiences 
were making meaning of beauty within their intersecting identities. To unpack that a little bit, I asked questions like, as an Afro-Latinx woman, have you been affected by anti-blackness? If yes, how? Can you give me an example? Or the last question was, has media played a role in how you and those around you determine beauty? Do you see yourself represented in the media? If yes, how? If not, how would you describe the closest representation? So these questions, it was just those two questions to wrap it up. And I wanted to really get those questions in there because it gets into that intersectionality of being black in a Latinx community, being Latinx in the black community, being within the community of Afro-Latinx folks and the issues that go on in there and how it affects women on a day-to-day. And of course, media portrayal, culture, black culture, Latinx culture, Caribbean culture, we see that being appropriated But we also, at the same time, in a strange way, see it being devalued, demoralized, being overused. We see folks wanting to look like us, but hate how we look. We see it with um, the Kardashians. We see it with um, blackface, aggressive tanning. We see it with actually very dangerous tactics that folks use to emulate afrocentric phenotypic features so that was my interview guide those were the questions that i asked um the eight participants that i'm so thankful for and at the end i usually let them know if they had i usually ask them if they had anything else they wanted to add um if they wanted to go back to any questions if they remembered any stories And then I would stop the recording, give them a little update on what the rest of the process of completing this project would look like, and then we would conclude the interview. So the last thing I want to get into before I close off this episode is to give a little bit of a preparation for the next episode. So on this episode, we went over the process of getting this honors thesis approved the process of recruiting and finally the interview process in the next episode we will talk about the data transcribing the data coding the data so analyzing the data and reporting the data and then in the last episode or couple of episodes we will focus on the implications of the data so what do we do with it? We have these stories, we have these commonalities, these differences. On the difference in liberation of beauty standards of Afro-Latinx women, what does it mean? Why is it important? Where should it go? What do we do with it? How do we apply this to our lives? I will leave this here. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope so far you are following (laughs) And I am, I hope so far you are enjoying the process of this research project as much as I am. And hopefully you enjoy the conclusion of this series. Bye.